So, so again, this morning, as we prepare uh, for this uh, preaching and teaching that God would have, and the reason why we cannot go by chapters 3 through 9 before we get into the prophetic reality of what God wants to show, as we said, that prophecy is, is God, uh, prophecy is, has to do with the earth and God fulfilling and bringing out his eternal mind. But even in the midst of that prophecy, and in the midst of the judgment of the earth, that's prophecy, the judgment of the earth, and what God is ultimately going to do, even in the midst of that, every truth that we have about who Christ is, who he is in his nature, character, and essence as the Son of God who, through his work that he only completed and finished, became the Son of Man. We can see that all those truths about who the person of Christ is and what he's accomplished in the reality of what we have in Christ right now as those that are in this dispensation of grace, this time period of God providing the dispensation of grace in the church age, is all of its seed is found in Genesis. Every single truth that we have, now it's going to be brought out in a, in, in a much clearer way than even those that God used to write these particular things. But in germ, they're all found right there. So as we said, what, what God wants to do, and I know this is how... This is the only way he wants to do this for us is to bring out the foundational truth about who we are in Christ as the church right now in this, in this dispensation of grace, the church age. Number one, that's to be our number one occupation, building on the foundation. And when we do that properly, then we can look at prophecy, the judgment and what God's doing in the earth and fulfilling in a way that will keep out fear and keep us in love on our solid foundation. And our foundation is our precious Savior. And so even when we look at these particular things, we will see, even, even when we look at this, and we see the beautiful, we've mentioned this before, you see when, the, when God gave the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit the truth of 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he said, I fear lest by any means, and notice that by any means, Boy, does he try to do that today with the lying, false teaching. Uh, so much today. If by any means that he may deceive you in his subtlety the way he did with Eve. That's 2 Corinthians 11.3. But let's go back and look at Genesis again, 3 and verse 1. The enemy, okay, was very subtle. We've gone into that word subtle in the past. But he was very, very subtle. But when I have the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 16, and when I let it be in me in Philippians 2 verse 5 through submitting my will, everything becomes simple. No longer am I confused in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. So you have the subtlety of the enemy in contrast with the simplicity that is ours in Christ. Not simple, simple in the way that it's the most wonderful thing. It's the most incredible thing, and we just can't even, uh, <laughs> to try and define the person of Christ and the work that he's accomplished, that's going to be an eternal reality, something we're going to grow in based upon Ephesians 3 and verse 19, to know the love of, 
of God than the love of Christ that passes knowledge, meaning we're going to continually understand it. But going back to Genesis 3 and verse 1, he was very subtle. He deceived Eve. We see that in 3.6 of Genesis. Adam transgressed. He knew better, but he stepped over the line. That's transgression. He, he wasn't ignorant. Okay, he, he wasn't ignorant. He knew better, but he did it. And then we see what God did. Adam covered himself with, with, you know, with works, with those fig leaves. We see that. We see it right away. And, and you can see the start of it in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 7, 8, and 9. And then they heard the voice in 8, 3, 8 of Christ. The, the Christophany, which is known as a, an appearance of Christ before he put on humanity. That's a Christophany. And then there's theothanies in different ways. But back then, they heard the voice of God and they, flee, they went and they hid themselves. They went and they hid themselves. And uh, obviously they tried to run into the trees and try and get some form of darkness that they could hide in while they covered themselves, which speaks of fleshly works, which don't amount to anything in God's sight because he sees right through fleshly works and sees the nakedness and the ruin and destruction of man. And he right away, he, he brings out the fact, you followed all the way through, and we're not going to get into that in depth. But in, in 3.15, we see that he was teaching them that he said that the serpent, the serpent would, 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 would hurt or bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That's Jesus Christ. This Genesis 3 verse 15 is pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what it's pointing to. Where Christ in, in his person and through the work that only he could accomplish, did accomplish. In John 19 verse 30, he accomplished it. So back then, back then, he's, that's what he's teaching them. But he would crush the head of the serpent. And that means, that would mean that's brought out in Hebrews uh, chapter 9 and verse 14 and 15. That's brought out in reality based upon John 1 and verse 14, Christ doing this, putting on humanity. And then we see in Hebrews 2, 9 to 18, he didn't take on the seed of angels. He took on the seed of, of man, Abraham. And, and really, he took on the seed of Abraham's seed. And that was Isaac, the child of promise, which was the type of Christ. That's why, as I believe that the only one that God could have chosen, and I believe that he did chose the Apostle Paul to write Hebrews, he said he took on the seed of Abraham in Hebrews 2.16. He didn't take on Abraham's seed, because that's the fallen seed. He took on the child of promise, a miracle that only God could accomplish when at the age of 100, Abraham, and at the age of Sarah, 99, only he could do, because they were way past trying to perform it, they couldn't do it. But God gave them a child, and that's a picture of Christ. And that's what Genesis 3, verse 15 is bringing out. And then you see the curses, you know, in, in Genesis 3, and verse 14, he gives the curse first to the enemy, to Satan. And he said, you, you know, like, like the serpent who was used was a beautiful animal. Many believe, and I do, that animal walked upright. 
But then it was cursed, and it was cursed to go on the ground, as low as you can get. And then it said, your meat will be the dust. Boy, I'll tell you, when you study these things out, boy, doesn't the enemy want to feed on the dust of our humanity. That's why in Psalm 119.25, the psalmist said, my soul, my self-consciousness is beginning to cleave to the dust where all those lust patterns are. Quicken me. Give me life according to your word. And that's what, it, that's what it's, God is bringing out to us. And then we see that he clothed them. He took away the works <laughs> that only Christ can do in Genesis 3 and verse 21. And he clothed them with the skins of an animal. That's a picture of Christ. That's why Isaiah says in 61 and verse 10, they clothed me with robes of righteousness. Those robes that we have, that we, when we put off the old in Ephesians 4 and verse 20 to 24 and put on the new, that's experiential reality based upon our position. All these truths are being brought out here in germ, but they're all right there in seed form, all of them. And that's why it's so very necessary to see where we are and the wickedness of man outside of Christ and what it leads to. And where we even are right to today, right to this moment that we're in. And so then over this period of time, we see, we see by the time you get to the sixth chapter of Genesis, you see, you see that in verse, again, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where the wickedness of man became so great that it, when we see this word repent, and we're going to see these things, okay, repent, that God repented. Now listen, we're going to understand that because that will eliminate a lot of false teaching. When we understand even that word repent, like it says in certain translations, but the original Hebrew says it grieved God in his heart. There was a grieving. Same way that for us, if we function in the flesh that's in us in Romans 8 verse 9 that we're not of, that's why it says in Ephesians 4 and verse 29, let no corrupt communication. That would be the thought life of the fallen, ruined flesh life that's in us, but that we're not of. Okay, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And look at what it says. And grieve not God, the Holy Spirit. Grieve not God, the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve him. And so that's what it says in Ephesians 4 and verse 30. So when it says repented God, we're going to see, we need to bring that out. But then it says that here in 6.5 of Genesis, every imagination of the thought of his mind and his emotions was only evil the whole day. Now when we talk about the mind, okay, and we talk about the soul, there are five parts to the mind which became very corrupt and unchangeable. There's the mind, the emotions, the will, self-consciousness, and the conscience. That means that every single thing about a person outside of Christ, or when we function in the flesh, that's in us but that we're not of, is only evil in every design, purpose, thought, everything about it's just complete evil. It's what makes it so necessary for us to trust God. Not by sight, but by complete faith. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, and in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18. The, only, the thought, the imagination, the whole thought, purpose, design, will 
was only evil all day long. Look at it says, continually, nonstop evil. Constantly, constantly. So God made a determination. And the determination was, and this is even brought out when it says continuously, and, and we'll get into the tenses and the cases and the moods at some point in the original Hebrew, like the Hifel and the Piel and all these different ones, but and we won't get into them right now, but it's like the Greek imperfect, right? Which is continuous action and past time that goes on continuously unless there's a stop. And so the whole evil of man is in the imperfect here, and it means it's an action that's frequently and constantly repeated. Just this nonstop. When may, so necessary for us to trust God so that he can build us properly in our own experience on our foundation, which is Christ, based upon our position so we can see it. So that's the force. The force and the use of the imperfect here is brought out. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. Thank God that our God is, Numbers 23 and verse 19, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should ever, not repent, change his mind. We're going to look at that word repent here in its proper understanding. God doesn't repent in that sense of a single thing. He just does not. He doesn't. Now, that, that word repent, again, it means in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew it means it grieved him. It grieved him. God, it grieved God to see what man was doing without the submission of his will. Till finally he saw all humanity, and listen to this, all of humanity outside of those eight, they're the only ones that received Christ and looking forward to the sacrifice that would go into the ark. The ark is the type of Jesus Christ. There's, that's that's the, the type. The ark, which in the ark, even when it's brought out in Exodus 25 and verses 17, uh, 17 to 22, the ark is always speaks of the presence of God. And where's the presence of God manifested and revealed? Of course, it's in Christ. Those eight, and eight speaks of the number of resurrection. Okay, in resurrection, the sun rises. We rise in resurrection in the east. And so what it brings out here in all of this, what it's bringing out here, is they entered into, there was all of, out of all those people, none they all resisted and refused salvation. They preferred darkness over light. That's what they did. Eight went in. They went in the ark. Okay, and the ark wasn't like a sailboat. They weren't sailing. It was flat. I don't have any question about it. It was to float above the waters of judgment. And that's what we are in Christ, in our position. High above all judgment. And then there was a window, and it was on the top. And their view, while judgment's going on, and being aware of it like we are in prophecy right now, our view is to be vertical. Why? Because we're not of the earth. We're a heavenly people. We're a heavenly people. That's who we are, and that's brought out in the epistle of Ephesians with Colossians. No question, but, it, but specifically in the epistle of Ephesians. And so he builds the ark. They were there probably, still in that ark for a year or more before the floods dried up and judgment was passed. But God, it grieved him in his heart. 
And what that word means there, to repent, we need this. God is not a man that he should ever lie or ever change his mind. God doesn't change his mind about a single thing. He doesn't. That's why in Proverbs 24 and verse 21, we're not to meddle with them that are given to change. Because God doesn't. He does not change. And so what we see here is that it's bringing out, it grieved him at his very core. It grieved his deep love for mankind. Now again, we said in, in Ezekiel 18 and verse 23 and 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, God's not willing that a single, in his love, is not willing. His will has nothing to do with, with desiring men to perish. That would do away with a lot of foolish evil teaching that God somehow would will before anyone was even born and could operate in their will, that he would will others to go to heaven and others to go to hell. Evil teaching, period. Not true. I don't care what name you put to it and who taught it. <laughs> so, but this repentance here, the repentance here or the grieving does not presuppose any variableness in his nature or his purposes. See that? What man did and caused him grief did not stop his purpose. He just couldn't use the first Adam, and he won't. He's going to use the second, and he does. And that is brought out in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and you can see verses 45 to 49. First Adam, second Adam. And we see that very, very clearly in the scriptures. And so God doesn't repent or change his mind like anyone, except man. And what do we do? And what were we doing the whole time we were in our fallen natures unsaved? We were lying or changing our mind. It's all we can do. Now that we're in Christ, if we go back to the flesh, all we can do is enter into a lie and change our mind. I can trust God. No, I can't. I doubt God, no, I trust him. And all that brings out is confusion in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 33 because the whole chaotic earth which caused a cataclysmic fall between Genesis 1, 1 and verse 2, it's brought out crystal clear that was the angelic conflict that caused the earth to be in a chaotic, confusing order in pitch darkness. We're going to see these things. It's very necessary. And, and this is all, and, and, and God gave all of this <laughs> this morning and said, this is why you're not, to, you're not to bypass that. You're to continue. And yes, yes, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. And so, again, he doesn't repent of anything. That's brought, in, that's brought out in 1 Samuel 15 and 29. It's brought out in Ezekiel uh, 24 and verse 14. It's brought out in 2 Timothy 2.13, God doesn't lie, Titus 1.2 and Hebrews 6.18. Because the lie, if God's truth, the lie, he'd have to change his mind, wouldn't he? That's why we need to function in the mind of Christ. It's immovable, unchangeable, victorious, and sovereign in our position in Christ in the heavens above everything that's going on in the earth. So, again... He never, he never changes his mind or repents in that sense. It's just an anthropomorphic, meaning anthro is man, pomorphic. We function a certain way, so for us to try and understand it, you ascribe that to God. But I don't think we need to do that if we have the proper understanding of the word. 
But that all that is, the grieving was this. This is what grieved him because it was the, the expression of the pain of his divine intense love at the sin of man. Boy, I, I tell you, I, when, I, when I sin, I want to con- completely confess it instantly in 1 John 1, 9 because I don't want to live grieving God in Ephesians 4, 30. And I don't want to live in sin. And while I live in sin, when I know to do good in James 4, 17 and don't do it, the whole time I am resisting God, resisting his love for me. And that has brought out why we need teaching and preaching in God's specific order in local assemblies is brought out in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 24, 25, and 26. You will see those that are unsaved and us when we function in the flesh the enemy is getting us to oppose ourselves because God's for us. He's even for those, for the most wicked person. Unsaved, he's still for them while they're still alive. Still for them. No question about that. So that's the expression of his love and signifies that God, it, it, it's, it pierces his very heart. It pierces him. And... Uh, and there is a hurt and, the, and there's a piercing. And isn't there, and that's why we say we worship a suffering God in pain. You know, we, we worship him. There's suffering involved in that. And that God would even humble himself. Because <laughs> he had to do that to come down because we could never go up. The distance was far too great. Far too great. We couldn't do it. That's why Jesus came down in John 3 verse 20. Seven and brought out again in Ephesians the fourth chapter in the ninth verse. And these scriptures are necessary for us to get the full preponderance of the evidence of the truth so that we can think properly for all of us. And so this, but the destruction of the flood that he did bring, it was not to bring the human race to an end. It wasn't to do that. Why? Was God being legalist? Let me ask you, let's ask, let's ask this. Was God ever legalistic toward a person? Never. Never. That's why you don't submit to legalistic preaching and works of the flesh. When, when those tell you you have to do something. God did all this through Jesus. Now the least you can do. Yeah, the least we can do, the most we can do is nothing. That's brought out in John 6.63 and Romans 7. In verse 18, we can do nothing. All our prophets in Christ, finished. But what did Noah find in Genesis 6, verse 8? He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And what we see there clearly is this, and this is what God did not want me to skip, all these truths that he's bringing out this morning as he was counseling me and leading me through the scriptures, scripture after scripture, And as he's doing with all of us, the same one that did it for me is the same one that's doing it for all of us right now, is in those words that what Noah found in the eyes of the Lord was grace, was his mercy, listen to this, in the midst of wrath. Is there mercy right now, right now when we're we're functioning in this dispensation of grace, the church age, is it, is there wrath Because wrath always has to do with what? Judgment. Judgment always has to do with the justice of God and his love and justice, listen, which you can't separate, unfulfilled because those that refuse Christ, 
who did fulfill the love and justice, and God's justice had to be met so his love could flow freely through grace. But that justice, which is a, a part of his nature, character, and essence, could never be bypassed. Ever. God never gives grace. The grace of his precious son, John 1, verse 14, and in Romans 6, 1 and 15, he never gives us grace to live in sin. Let's just, let's just deal with that right now. He never gives us grace to live in sin, but it's the only answer out of it. So we see that right in the midst of this judgment, right in the midst, right in the complete midst of this judgment, we see very, very clearly in the scriptures, we see that mercy is right in the midst of wrath, pledging the preservation and restoration of humanity. That's what he did when those eight went in. What a plan he has. You know who he did that for? He did that for each of us. That's what he did. When those eight went into that archetype, they entered into Christ in type and were above the waters of judgment. While their view, they weren't occupied, they knew judgment, but they weren't overwhelmed and occupied with that judgment and that prophecy being fulfilled. Their view was vertical. Now we as the church can look back and understand now 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. We can see it clearly. The restoration of humanity. Now, that's why when we see, we see mercy in the midst of wrath, what, that's what the teaching in James 2, verse 13 says. Okay? What it says in the King James, his mercy rejoices against judgment. It's, it's not against like you and I think. <laughs> like God's love which was his ten tender, compassionate, his tender, compassionate flow of his love and mercy is not against his justice. <laughs> it meets it and is satisfied. That's James 2, verse 13. Mercy, and I said, what do you mean by that, God? And he told me this morning, like he's telling all of us, the same source is telling all of us together, that mercy glories with wrath, because it's not, it's not separated. Being met. Being met. And who met that? It's Jesus Christ. His justice is fulfilled by Christ. That's what's being brought out here. In type, as we look back. In type. Now, because outside of truth and outside of reality, okay, what do we just live in? You know, I tell you, this is what makes it so necessary for us, what's so necessary to be taught so much better, so much better. No wonder we're better off in Christ in Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews, the key word is better off. Because we're in him who's better. That's Hebrews. That's what he was teaching a bunch of Jewish Christians that became one in Christ, in Hebrews 2, in, in Ephesians 2.14, the middle wall of petition was broken down between Jew and every other population or every other ethnicity. They became one. They became one. And that's what makes it very, very clear, very clear that we're all one, but that this is why we have these lessons and we need to learn them. That's what was in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was... was Jews that lost their Jewishness and their whole old way of thinking and doing, going back to works, and they got into Christ, but then there were Judaizers and others that would come along, 
and just try and get them back and bring them back into Judaism again. That unlocks what is called, and people have trouble with Hebrews, the sixth chapter, in Hebrews, the tenth chapter. But Christ is the key that unlocks all of that. He has the key. That's why it says in Isaiah 22 and 22, the key is on his shoulder, just like the whole government in Isaiah 9 and verse 6 and 7 is. Okay, so, but we have that, and we, this is what makes it necessary for us to continually be taught. The only way he can teach us properly is that he must create hunger in us. Otherwise, we're, what do we care? We'll be so busy with so many other things, so many other schedules, so many other lies that the enemy excuses, the enemy gives us. And of course, Christ came and he did away with all the cloaks and excuses in John 15 and verse 22. Well, without excuse, Romans chapter 2 and 3 and 4. You're without excuse, oh man. You're without it. Stop making excuses why you can't hear the word of God and be taught properly. Stop making the excuses. And stop allowing the enemy to allow you to be settled down with just a little measure of truth and comfortability on the earth. <laughs> Boy, ooh. There's a little bit of my laugh because that's being spoken to all of us, including me, myself, and I. It's so good to be taught the Word of God. And we need to be reproved or corrected by His love because if not, we're going to still live in these rash, delusional conclusions. And we make those to be the sufficient proof that the enemy gives us to keep us in deception, even as Christians, and cause us to live in the lie of a false character and image. We need, the, we need to be taught. God sent that flood and judged it, all humanity. That's why in this present dispensation right now, this dispensation of grace, the church age, he's not making the world a better place. He's taking people out of that and placing them in the one body of Christ and then sending them to be properly taught in local assemblies. That's all he's doing right now, period. That's why even in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 9, he does not pray for the world. Got this simple. His prayers or his intercession have to do with those that are his. That's brought out clearly in the scriptures, again, his intercession is Romans 8 and verse 34. That's Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 and Hebrews 9 and verse 24. But we'll just live with human reasoning under the, under the enemy and live in delusional thoughts that somehow we can settle down as Christians on this earth and make a comfortable little place for us when judgment's coming. You know how comfortable those people were? You listen to their testimonies. Listen to what they said. They were in Ukraine. They were functioning every day in their life. They were college students laughing, having coffee together. And then, boom, it changed. Their whole life changed. In an instant. Oh, boy, it's so necessary to trust him for everything. And not to take those material goods and those things to make those be the things that we cling to and not him. Because heaven and earth, in Matthew 24 and verse 35, and Isaiah 40 and verse 8, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. My word, it says, will not pass away. 
God expected that no change would ever occur in fallen, human, ruined nature. In his mercy, he brought the flood. That's right. That was, that was his love and wrath mingled in doing a great work of preserving those preserving humanity and giving every single individual the opportunity to submit their will and receive Christ. That's what he did with Noah. He preached for 120 years. Judgment's coming. You need to receive Christ. You need to receive God's only way. They laughed and mocked him for 120 years. And then in one night, boom, judgment came. They went into the ark. The door was closed. And even those, when it says they were banging on those doors, they didn't, they didn't want to get in because they had repented. They wanted to get, get in to continue living in the only way that they wanted. Okay, and that's brought out, and we'll see that uh, ultimately in John chapter 3 and verse 17 to 22. We'll bring that out crystal clear in the scriptures. But out of pure mercy and his long-suffering, compassionate patience, he said, I will never send a second flood. That's brought out, that's, uh, that's Genesis 8, verse 21, brought out in a beautiful picture in, in Genesis, the ninth chapter, in the 13th and 14th verse. And there's a reason why even in Hebrews 4 and verse 3, where we see where Christ is seated on a throne and around it is not just a half rainbow, but a full one. You see, a circle of a rainbow, it says in color like emerald. You know, even the grass and all the plants. Green is brought out scientifically. It's the easiest, most restful color for the human eye to take in because it speaks of the mercy and grace and compassionate love of God. And so when this is brought out, it's, it's, it's brought out beautifully that he would never do it again. And there's a circle around the throne because only Christ could unite heaven and earth. That's the picture that's the picture. And I said Hebrews, and it's Revelations chapter 4 and verse 3. That's the circular, and that's he unites heaven and earth, and ultimately you'll see what Christ has accomplished in 1 Corinthians 15 and 28, that God may be all in all. He will even submit that God may be all in all. So incredible. He, he knew that. So it's out of pure mercy that he did this. So now there's the destruction of the old world by the flood. Total destruction of that. And then there's the preservation of Noah together with all those animals. All of that. Because, and this is what the Hebrew brings out. Because that, in, that event, that thing that happened included, on the one hand, what? A work of judgment and mercy. Judgment, justice and mercy of the greatest significance to the history of the kingdom of God. Now, remember the difference. The kingdom of God, okay, the kingdom of God is he rules everywhere in all eternity because in Isaiah 57 and verse 15, he inhabits eternity. But where's the place he's not ruling just yet? It's on the earth. And that's the kingdom of heaven. So when he said, and he taught the disciples how to pray, not the Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer again is John 17. He taught the disciples how to pray in, in Matthew the 6th chapter, your will in the 10th verse, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a beautiful understanding that God wants to bring out to us, and he doesn't want us to bypass these things. 
So, but the old world, the old way, was destroyed by the flood. He destroyed all of that humanity. Right? And Jesus Christ, in dealing with what he dealt with us in our old nature, in Romans 6, 1 through 6, he did, did away with it forever <laughs> in Romans 6, 6. That's what the cross is bringing out. Genesis 3, verse 15 and 21. Galatians 6 and verse 14, for us in this dispensation of grace, the church age. God forbids, he absolutely forbids that any of us glory in anything. That's why I don't believe in titles. If you read Job 32, verses 21 and 22, God forbid that I should give titles to man. If I do, those, Satan will even use those titles to withdraw me from Christ. We don't, we don't, I don't believe in titles before your name or after them. In whatever, whatever letter form they are found in. <laughs> he destroyed it. God forbids that I should glory. Except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Of whom the world, notice, the world is crucified unto me. Brought out way back in Genesis. The world is crucified unto me. And me, this old man that used to function in that old world, is crucified. So... Anything that the believer goes back to outside of Christ to find happiness or joy or some form of an escape, and those are just excuses to not allow God to deal in you the way he needs to in the place that he's put you in. All of us. All of us. See? He crucified the old. Old things in 2 Corinthians 5.17 are passed away. Geez, I wonder when God began to see that. Well, he saw it in the Lamb in Revelation 13.8 before the foundation of the world. The works in Hebrews 4 and verse 3 were finished from the foundation of the earth. The world, completely. He did it. So the destruction of the old world <clears throat> by the flood and the preservation of Noah brings us out beautifully. A judgment of such universally universality and, and violence and, and violence will only be will, he promised that will never be seen again he'll never destroy the earth by a flood but he will baptize it in fire that's brought out in second peter chapter 3 and verse 13 and that's why heaven and earth will pass away not be done away with completely of course it's not going to be and we base that truth upon ecclesiastes 1 and verse 4 world without end, which means earth in that particular sense, in Isaiah 45 and verse 17, and in Ephesians 3 and verse 21. It will not be done away with, it will be changed in its appearance, prepared for us, for the millennial reign, and for us to rule and reign with him at that particular time, for that thousand years, prior to going into the eternity of the eternities. That's brought out in the beginning of, of Revelations 21, but brought out fully in Revelations chapter 22. And so what we see here <clears throat> is a beautiful truth. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of God's mercy, which made the flood itself, and it was a flood of grace. That's what it was. That's right. A flood of grace, no question. And in respect of that, it's, that is the type of our baptism. See, baptism does not have to do with life. 
has to do with death. Okay? And I don't believe it's a prerequisite for someone to go to a local assembly that they must be physically baptized before they can go there or be a member of that particular place. If God leads, and I do believe, if he, should, if he allows you and you should do that, you should. And I believe in his grace will lead you to do so, but it's not so you can join a particular local assembly. That's a bunch of nonsense. Okay? And out of death came life. That's the life of Christ himself that he's made ours in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10. So we, we need to see that there, and that's the type of the baptism. And that's even what Peter's bringing out through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit bringing out through Peter, I should say, in 1 Peter 3, 18, 19, 20, and 21. He baptized the earth in water. And out of it, violence and death came what? Life. It's a picture of us. Do you see? See, God wants to, even as we prepare for prophecy, he's building us on that foundation. What a solid foundation it is. What a solid foundation. So it, it is what? It's life, ark, the eight, resurrection, view, heavenly, where it comes from. The life rising out of death and judgment. That's what Christ did on Calvary. Destruction, as someone said, destruction ministers to preservation. Notice that? Not with the enemy. No, he comes to seek to kill and, and he, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy in John 10, 10. Hey, but I, Christ said, come that they might have life, life more abundantly. That's what was brought out even back here in the flood in 8 and 9 of Genesis, brought out crystal clear out of it. So destruction ministers and brings, brings us to preservation, immersion, baptism, to purification, because you have to do away with the old, completely gone, and out of it, the purity of who we are in Christ no wonder it says to the pure in Titus 1 and verse 15, all things are pure. Because we're in Christ. But to them that are defiled, their conscience, you know, and that's the flesh that's in us that we're not of, that's the, the conscience, can be defiled through a lie, through a lack of teaching, through a lack of submission, through a lack of knowing to do good and doing it not, it becomes this sin. Immersion to purification, listen, death, to new birth, the old corrupt earth is buried in the flood that out of this grave a whole new world may arise. And that's Christ. Now that world's going to be manifested not till millennial reign. Not till millennial reign. So God has considered back then in Genesis 6 verse 5 and Genesis 8 verse 21 that there was the corruption of all flesh. Every single human being. Every single one. The, the teaching that God gave to the church, to you and I, through the Apostle Paul, who's the Apostle that God gave to us, is brought out in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. You can see it crystal clear. Very, very clear there that the corruption of all flesh. How do I base that on? No? More scripture. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Psalm 53, 1 through 3. There's nothing sound in it, not a single thing. That's, the, that's what we go back to when we don't trust God. That's exactly what we go back to. 
And then we expect judgment in that place, don't we? And is there? No. None. None for us. Plenty there. Plenty there. That's brought out in Romans the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Positional truth, what, but what the experience can be as a result of functioning in the flesh. This all has to do, all of this is brought out here. The corruption of all flesh is just going to continually be repeated for those that are outside of Christ. Outside of Christ. So that corruption is represented as corrupting the whole earth and filling it with wickedness. Happen to see any wickedness today? Has anything changed? Has the world got better? Is man going to make it a utopia like he thought he could do in Genesis, the 11th chapter? That he somehow could reach up to God? That he could do it just like God? The delusional the, such delusion, the earth is going to be, and you know, we need to save it with green energy. We need to save the earth because we'll destroy it. Yeah, the scriptures say it won't happen. Because whatsoever God does, in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 14, he does forever. Okay? And that's why when he created man in his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and in Genesis 5 and verse 2, he created him forever. You'll die physically, but your soul and your spirit will live somewhere for all eternity. Because death never means extinction or annihilation. <laughs> oh, Lord. The whole earth is filled with it. The corruption proceeded from the fact that all flesh, every human being, the whole human race resisted God. That's all we do in the flesh. They resisted God. Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned because he taught the truth to those legalistic people? Those that supposedly represented God by their outward appearance, but yet inside they were full of dead men's bones? Read Matthew 23. They're like a whited sepulcher on the outside, inside, full of dead men's bones. Legalistic. The due crowd, still in the old covenant, which no one could ever keep. Still in the due crowd, that's, that's Deuteronomy 4 and verse 1, the due crowd. We're the received crowd because it's done crowd, in Christ crowd. Well, all flesh, the whole human race, they were stoning Stephen because they hated to hear the truth. Hated it. They were yelling at him. And then they began to stone him because he said to them, you stubborn and stiff-necked people. You know what a stiff neck is? It's a will that refuses to be submitted. You stiff-necked people, you like your fathers did. Yeah, you mean, you know, just the old, old ones there since the law? No, follow it all the way back. Who was your first daddy? Where did we all come from? Acts 17 and verse 28. We all come from one blood, Adam. You're just like your fathers who always do resist the Holy Spirit. And what you resist is the Holy Spirit taking the things of Christ, showing you the only way in John 16, 13, and 14 as your only guide to show you the reality of Christ and you're resisting him. So we're going to wrap this up this morning. But I'll tell you, we're, we're going to get into... All those other things that we're probably so anxious to, you know, and so anticipating, like knowing all these things. But this is very necessary first because it keeps us in a humble place 
for God to add that grace so we won't take it and make it something that we know apart from submitting to him. So we see that whole fact that they resisted the influence of God and then they became fallen, ruined flesh and everyone had corrupted its way. What's the only way? Jesus Christ in John 14, verse 6. What did Jeremiah, what was Jeremiah taught by the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah 10 and verse 23? Oh God, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man to direct his own steps. Yeah. Proverbs 20, 24. Man's goings, it says, are of the Lord. How is it then that a man can understand his own way? Does our own way make any sense outside of Christ's way? You better make sure all your plans and every single thing that you do and I do are being led by him. Because the flesh that's in us is just as subtle as it ever was and susceptible to be led experientially by the enemy. No question about it. Okay, no question about it. So we'll wrap it up here. They all corrupted his way. The spirit of the man is the candle of the Lord. It's the lamp of the Lord. Searching all the inward parts in Proverbs 20, 27. It's made very clear in the scriptures. Very, very, very clear. That's why in Proverbs 23, 23, it says, by the truth. And we're going back to Revelations 3 and 18. We're going to continue on that. God isn't finished with that, I don't believe at all. By the truth, sell it not. Proverbs 23, also wisdom and understanding. With Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, come buy without money, is explaining Revelations 3 and verse 18. But uh, it's that way, it's God's way, or the way of the flesh. Thank you, God, that we've been delivered from that. And prophecy is being taught right now. This is prophecy. This is prophetic truth for us. But the reason that we have a more sure word of prophecy is that Christ has fulfilled it. We're not a part of it anymore. Thank you, God. We're in Christ. And God wants the day to dawn in our hearts, the morning star, to arise. That means to experience Christ and what he's accomplished in his person and the work that he finished for each and every single individual that is his. So that that day continues to dawn, that path, that light in Psalm 36, verse 9 and Proverbs 4, verse 18, gets clearer and clearer until we see him finally face-to-face in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and then we'll still learn without interruption for all eternity based upon Ephesians 3, 19-21. And Father, we thank you and praise you for your precious truth this morning, this prophetic truth and where it's leading us. We need to be much more, and we need to know these particular things, and God wants to give them to us. The most important thing for us to know with this teaching, even with prophecy and foundational truth, is the fact that the most important thing for us to know is that God knows us now in his son, meaning he loves us like he loves his son. No different. And he wants that to be in our experience. As we learn, and, and, and we're going through prophecy, we're not settling down in the world where that prophecy is being fulfilled. But we're on our way, passing through suffering, but we're on our way to see him face to face 
in our own individuality where we'll fellowship with him first and foremost in Revelations 2 and 17 and then with each other. But we can even do that now in 1 John 3, 1 to 4. So Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.